0: Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And we have a listener question that we're going to go through today that I'm looking forward to. And if you are listening and have a question as well, always keep in mind, you can submit any question that I'll answer in a future episode. You just go to readyforretirement.co, that's readyforretirement.co, and there's a tab there called Submit Your Question. So this question today is from Moitza. Moitza says, thank you for your podcast. It's one of the best ones on retirement topics, right to the point in each episode, and extremely educational. Thank you, Moitza. I appreciate that. She then goes on to say, I have two questions regarding our somewhat different situation. One has to do with Roth conversions and early retirement. My husband is seven and a half years older and will likely be close to his RMD when I will be retiring. So we won't have too many years when our income will be low. We are in the highest tax bracket and I make most of the money. Are there any specific strategies for such a situation? Should we just assume our taxes will remain high? Second question has to do with municipal bonds and a taxable account. How can they best be used to keep taxes low? And is there a percentage of a portfolio or the taxable part or some other number of how much makes sense to have? Again, assuming highest tax bracket now and later. Thank you for your podcast. All right. Well, thank you for your question, Moitza. As I'm reading this, there's really three main questions that I'm pulling from this. Number one How does a Roth conversion strategy change when there's an age gap between spouses? Number two. How does Roth conversion strategy change when you're in the highest income tax bracket? And number three, how do you best use or even just think about municipal bonds in your portfolio? So great question. Now, before we jump in, just a quick reminder again that you can find all of this content that you're listening to here on the podcast and more on YouTube as well. So the podcast, of course, is Ready for Retirement. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. And the YouTube content, so the video version of what we're talking about right now, as well as additional supplemental videos can be found on YouTube under Root Financial Partners. Let's get back to the question now. So as we're looking at these questions, I'm going to preface all this and say this is for informational educational purposes only. I don't have enough information, nor do I have an advisory agreement in place to provide specific feedback, but we can certainly go over some general things to look for let's start with question number one. And question number one is how does a Roth conversion strategy change when there's an age gap between spouses? Well, what it's going to do is it of course decreases the number of years that you have to do those conversions, assuming conversions make sense in the first place for your strategy. So usually when you're going to implement a Roth conversion strategy, you might have a few years to implement this. So you can convert small bits and pieces, or at least smaller bits and pieces of IRAs, or other pre-tax accounts into Roth IRAs before the required minimum distribution age begins. So what can you do here if there's an age gap? And as Moitz is saying, she may be retiring right as her husband is getting close to required minimum distribution age. Well, the first thing that you can consider doing is convert the older spouse's assets first. So in this case, that would be her husband. Why? Well, those are going to be the first that hit the required minimum distribution rules. So hypothetically, and I don't think this is probably going to be the case here, but hypothetically, what if you converted all the older spouse's assets first? Well, then the older spouse hitting age 72, which is as of today, when you have to take required distributions, it doesn't really mean anything. 72 just becomes another year where there's no significance there if all the older spouse's assets are now in Roth IRAs. Now, of course, that is easier said than done. If you have a significant amount, if the older spouse has a significant amount in pre-tax assets, it's probably not realistic to assume that all of those or even a majority of those could be converted in a short amount of time without paying a huge amount in taxes for converting such a large amount, which in many cases wouldn't be recommended when you have that short of a time frame. But regardless of that, converting the older spouse's assets first still probably does make more sense because those are going to be the first assets to be subject to the required minimum begin date. And so the fewer pre-tax assets that spouse has, the fewer required distributions the two of you together have, because if you're married finally and jointly, it doesn't matter whose assets are being distributed. They're going to be subject to the same taxes. Now, another thing to keep your eye on is see if ages get pushed back. There's talk right now of pushing the required minimum distribution age back to 75. So up until recently, it was age 70 and a half. That was pushed to 72. Well, there is talk that they may be pushing that back even further. So just something to keep an eye on, because if that does happen, then it could be a wonderful thing because it just creates three additional years that you could start to implement some of these tax strategies before being required to take distributions. The next thing that I would consider doing is look at and examine your asset location strategy. So take a look or listen to episode number 76. If you haven't done so already, we talk about asset location and asset location. Just to summarize, it says, how can we put the most tax inefficient investments into accounts that don't pay any taxes or at least have taxes deferred? So an IRA, for example, then if we have an account that's not tax deferred, so say a brokerage or joint account, for example, how do we put the most tax efficient investments there? so that any growth that does happen on those investments is subject to the least amount of taxes possible. So that's a concept of asset location. And why that matters is when you're talking about this Roth conversion strategy, you'll start to see how everything ties into each other. But if you're going to have bonds in your portfolio, whatever amount of your portfolio may be allocated to bonds, maybe those investments go into your husband's IRA. There would be two benefits to this. Number one, as we've talked about before, bonds aren't the most tax efficient as you're earning interest, that interest is subject to ordinary income taxes as opposed to capital gains taxes. So we want to put bonds in many cases into an account like an IRA where any taxes are deferred. So it doesn't matter how tax inefficient it is. You're not paying taxes on that interest anyways. The second benefit here is as your spouse is hitting his required minimum distribution age first in this example, as his IRA keeps growing, so do the required minimum distributions. So required minimum distributions, it's a percentage of your account that you have to take out each year based upon IRS life expectancy tables, and it's a percentage based upon last year's year-end balance in your IRA. So if last year's year-end balance doubles, well, for all intents and purposes, your required distribution doubles. So if you have your most aggressive investments in an IRA, and that means the IRA just keeps growing and growing and growing, that means your required distribution keeps growing and growing and growing. So in addition to an asset location strategy telling you to put bonds inside of your husband's IRA, the reason that you might put that in your husband's IRA as opposed to your IRA in this example, if the husband's older, is also to manage the IRA balance. It will help to keep that balance lower because bonds just won't grow as much over time. And if any portion of the portfolio needs to be there, that might be the portfolio or the portion of the portfolio that makes most sense. Again, this is there's a lot of details that need to be covered here, but just wanna talk generally about how I might approach this. The third part about this, you talk about how will number of years you have to do conversions, how will that impact the strategy? It just changes the analysis as well. So many times you might have anywhere from six to 12 years of what I'll call convertible years. Assuming a Roth conversion strategy makes sense for you, you may have between six to 12 years to implement those conversions, not to fully get everything into Roth IRAs, but to manage the balance better between pre-tax IRAs and Roth IRAs and really managing what you expect to have in pre-tax accounts by requiring them distribution age. So that those required distributions don't become unmanageable and put you into really significantly higher tax brackets. Well, in this case, you might only have one year to do that or two years to do that or however long you have between retiring Moitza and your husband then retiring. So you're probably not going to be able to implement the full strategy, but that doesn't mean you don't want to take advantage for that year or two years or three years or whatever ends up being, because it's still absolutely better than nothing. A fourth thing that I might consider, and this may or may not make sense, but a fourth thing I might consider here is deferring that first required minimum distribution until April 1st of the following year. So your required minimum distribution is in the year that you turn 72, but your first RMD must be taken by April 1st of the following year. Now, what you could do is you could, and again, I'm not saying this makes sense for certain, but certainly something to consider. You could defer that first RMD until the following year. Really, you're just kicking the can down the road because then in that following year, so in the year your husband turns 73, you'd have to take his 72-year-old RMD plus his 73-year-old RMD. But the benefit is, is it gives you one more year where that money could be converted instead of withdrawn. So say, for example, the RMD for your husband is $50,000 in year one, and you kick it into the following year. Well, then instead of taking an RMD in the year that he turns 72, you do a $50,000 conversion that's money that will now be in a Roth forever, a Roth IRA forever. Had you taken the distribution instead, you still would have had that $50,000 tax hit, but it wouldn't be able to go to the Roth IRA. It would have just been a withdrawal that you would pay taxes on, which you could reinvest in a brokerage account, but you could not put into a Roth. So it just almost clears the way for one additional year of conversions. You do have to balance that with the extra taxes you'll pay in the following year because you have effectively two RMDs. But if you look at your overall tax strategy, that could potentially be something that makes sense. And then the final piece that I'll say on this front is, as you're looking at how does the analysis change, if you do any amount of charitable giving, I would highly encourage you to check out episode number 51. It's called The Ultimate Tax Planning Strategy, Combining Roth Conversions with Other Deductions. And there are ways to get significant amounts converted into your Roth IRA without paying significant amount of taxes. And it has to do with combining the Roth conversions with the giving strategy. So if charitable giving in any way is a part of what you are doing, be sure to check that out because there's countless clients and people that that saved tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for overtime and taxes, sometimes even more because of how that works. So check that out because if you have a limited time and you want to squeeze as much conversions in as you can, that could potentially be a way to do it. The next part of this question was really, how does a Roth conversion strategy change when you're in the highest income tax bracket? Well, when I'm looking at it and I'm looking at Roth conversion strategies, it really has less to do with what tax bracket are you in today. It's about comparing your tax bracket today with where we expect it will be in the future. So it's really a relative comparison, not an absolute number. So if your tax bracket's high today and it will decrease in retirement, then conversions today probably don't make a lot of sense. Let's not convert money and pay taxes at the highest rate today if we're then going to withdraw that money when we would have been in a lower tax bracket and we probably should have just kept money in a pre-tax account and taken it out at a lower tax bracket in the future. But if they are high today, if your tax brackets are high today and potentially new tax law goes into effect or you have concerns that taxes will be much higher in the future, that could be a point where even though you're in a high tax bracket, if you're in a relatively low bracket compared to where we will be, that's where conversions could make sense. The hard part about this is higher taxes in the future is really a function of two variables. It's not about where our tax bracket's gonna be and what's that gonna look like, it's where our federal and state tax bracket's gonna be and what will your taxable income look like. And even that isn't as black and white or cut and dry as it makes it sound like because federal and state tax rates, it's not just about what's your overall income, but there's all kinds of deductions you have to take into account. You have to look at things like Social Security being taxed differently than Roth IRA distributions, taxed differently than traditional IRA distributions, taxed differently than things like real estate if you have it. So at a high level, it's a function of what's your federal and state tax bracket in the future and what is your taxable income in the future future. Within that, of course, there's different levels and there's different ways of calculating what that will be. But you have to compare where will your overall bracket be when combining those two factors and compare that to where you are today. So easier said than done in many cases. But the point of it is how does a Roth conversion strategy change during the highest income tax bracket? It doesn't really change a whole lot in the sense that the analysis is still between where you are today and where you're going to be in the future. So what does change is it becomes a lot more painful to implement a Roth conversion strategy when you're in the highest income tax bracket. If you're able to convert and pay 10% taxes or 12% taxes at the federal level, even that sometimes hurts a little bit because say you convert $50,000 in your combined state and federal tax brackets, 15%, which is relatively low. That's still a $7,500 check. You're paying extra in taxes this year. Now, compare that same strategy of converting $50,000 when your combined tax bracket is 40%. Well, that would be a $20,000 extra tax hit. So the analysis itself doesn't change because it's very much a relative comparison. But the pain of implementing it, I will say, does change. Because in many cases, people say, oh, I just rather would not pay this. And I'll just kick the tax can down the road, which may end up hurting you more so to do that, but we are just hardwired to avoid paying. And so I would just say, practically speaking, that's probably what's going to hurt the most or change the most. Now, the other thing that does change, going back to how does the Roth conversion strategy change when you're in the highest income tax bracket, is that at some point, it's not just your income taxes that you start looking at. If you're in the highest income tax bracket, then other taxes start becoming more and more of a consideration. One is the net investment income tax. This was the tax passed after the Affordable Care Act passed or Obamacare. It is a 3.8% tax on investment income if your modified adjusted gross income is above $250,000 if you're married or if it's above $200,000 and you're single. So that's a tax that you pay not on your salary, but on investment income. So think of dividends, capital gains, a lot of the growth in your joint account, which goes back to the asset location conversation that we had. But that's a tax on the investment portion that layers on top of your federal taxes and state taxes and payroll taxes and things like that. Another tax that becomes a bigger and bigger issue as your income starts to rise isn't officially a tax, but it's IRMA surcharges. So this is Medicare surcharges, extra Medicare premiums that you'll have to pay. And if you are in the highest IRMA surcharge category or Medicare premium category, you may pay up to an additional $433.50 per month per person at the highest rates, and that's based upon 2021 numbers. So for a married couple, finally jointly, that's an additional $10,400 per year in taxes that will be paid based upon extra Medicare premiums. So while not a tax per se, it is certainly treated as such because as your income goes up, as your modified adjusted gross income goes up, your premiums go up. So these amounts that we're talking about, the 433.50 per month, that's if you're married, filing jointly, and your adjusted gross income is 750000 or more. But the surcharges don't start there. The surcharges start tiering up at 176000 per year in income for married, filing jointly, and 88000 per year if you're single in 2021. So that's another tax that you have to keep in mind. And then third is the estate taxes. So if you're in the highest income tax bracket today and your concern is even when you retire, you'll be in the highest income tax bracket. My guess is you probably have a decent number of assets. Sounds like you've had a good income. I'm guessing you've invested that if your income will continue even once you've retired. Right now, you have $11.7 million of lifetime estate tax exemptions per person. So if you're married, double that. What that means is if you pass away any of your net worth in excess of that amount, gets taxed at 40% at the federal level, and then some states have an estate tax as well. So let's look at a quick example. Let's assume that you have a $30 million net worth. Maybe you own a business, maybe you own a lot of real estate, maybe it's just a lot of stocks and bonds, whatever it is, you have a $30 million net worth. Well, today the estate tax exemption is as high as it's ever been. It's at $23.4 million. So if you were to both pass away today, again, that $23.4 million is the combined exemption for both spouses. If you were to pass today, there'd be $6.6 million taxable of that $30 million estate once you backed out the exemptions. If you multiply that by 40%, the estate tax on that would be $2.64 million. So a lot of the estate or the net worth is exempt, but there still is that estate tax. Today, as a percentage of the population, not a whole lot of people are subject to the estate tax. But with the new proposed tax law changes, that is one of the areas that we could see numbers coming down quite a bit on and when those numbers come down it doesn't mean taxes come down it really means taxes go up because it's the exemption coming down. there is talk of that exemption dropping to 3.5 million per person. obviously that's subject for debate and negotiation and we'll see what it ends up being but if you are in a position where you're, in the highest tax bracket today, and you think you'll also be in the highest tax bracket once retirement starts, I'm going to guess that you probably have a decent net worth and that you have assets that are creating an income even once you're no longer working. So estate taxes could become a bigger issue. Maybe not today, or maybe they could be. I certainly have no idea how much assets you have as you're writing this question. But if there is a proposed estate tax law change, that's where some of this comes into play too. So it's not just about the Roth conversion strategy. It's also about looking at total taxes, estate taxes, net investment income taxes, Medicare surcharges, income taxes. All of these things are things that need to be considered as you're putting together a strategy to minimize that as much as possible. And then three, the third part of this question was how do you best use muni bonds? And muni bonds is just short for municipal bonds. Well, it starts with asset location, as we mentioned. Muni bonds are bonds that you would put into your taxable account because they're not taxable. And we'll talk about why in a second. But as we mentioned, you may not want to have any bonds in your taxable account. You potentially might want to load up your traditional IRA with bonds because your traditional IRA is where you can take advantage of the tax deferral and not have to pay any taxes even as you have taxable interest coming in from those bonds. So before even looking at municipal bonds, the first thing I would say is start with asset location see if it makes sense to use bonds in your traditional IRA instead of your brokerage account. Now, one quick side note on this is I typically almost never recommend using bonds inside of Roth IRAs. If you just look at asset location, sometimes you can become so academic and so myopic and so focused on on one thing that you lose sight of the bigger picture. And a lot of articles and a lot of literature will talk about using bonds in Roth IRAs too because Roth IRAs also are tax-free. So let's put the tax-inefficient things in Roth IRAs. Well, to me, just using a little bit of common sense is I want my Roth IRAs to be as big as possible. I want all the growth, the maximum growth of all the accounts I have, I want the most growth to be in the Roth IRAs because those are accounts I'll never pay taxes on again. So if I have to put bonds in there because of my portfolio makeup, then maybe I do, but I'm not going to start by putting bonds in my Roth IRAs. In fact, I'm probably going to put the most growth- type investment in my Roth IRAs. I want those to be probably the accounts I use later on in retirement. I want those to be the accounts that grow the most because that's where I have the most tax benefits. But the main point here is before I even talk about municipal bonds, see if you should even own bonds in your taxable account at all, or if they should be owned in your traditional IRA. Now let's assume that you do want to use bonds and let's assume that you do use municipal bonds or muni bonds. What you have to do is you have to do a tax equivalent yield or you have to run a calculation that's going to generate a tax equivalent yield. People sometimes assume that muni bonds are always better in a taxable account, and that is absolutely not true. In many cases, they are, but I see too many people come in with muni bonds in their taxable account because they think that's what you do. But when we take a closer look at their situation, it definitely does not warrant having muni bonds in a taxable account. So let's look at why. Income from investing in municipal bonds is generally exempt from federal and state taxes For residents of the issuing state. So the interest income on these municipal bonds is generally tax exempt. Now, keep in mind, any capital gains that are distributed to the investor, those are still fully taxable. Meaning if you buy a municipal bond, any interest you receive is tax free. But the growth on that bond, let's say interest rates drop and that municipal bond becomes more valuable. So it goes up in value. If you were to sell it, the capital gain is still taxable. It's just the interest is tax-free. Now, these aren't just magical bonds that somehow have no taxes owed and that have these magical tax benefits. What they are is they're bonds that are going to fund the day-to-day obligations of states and municipalities. So, if it's building schools or highways or sewer systems or other kind of government projects, the government's going to give some tax benefits for owning them. So, they don't just miraculously have no taxes. It is bonds specifically used for those purposes, so the government offers tax benefits for them. But because of that, municipal bonds are going to usually have lower yields, which is because the market values them higher. The market is going to value tax-free income higher than it's going to value taxable income. So because of that, the market drives the price of municipal bonds up, which tends to drive the interest rates down. So here's an example of an analysis that you might want to look at. Let's say that you have a taxable account and you have decided that there's a percentage of that taxable account that you're going to invest in bonds and you have two choices in front of you. You have corporate bonds that are paying an interest rate of five percent and you have municipal bonds that are paying an interest rate of three and a half percent. What's better? Well, it's too early to say we don't have enough information yet because we don't know your tax rate. Let's now look at what if your tax rate is 20 percent. Now we can do the analysis. So that corporate bond we mentioned has a 5% yield, 5% interest, but we have to back taxes out of that because we know that that 5% is going to be fully subject to taxes. So if we take out your tax rate of 20%, that 5% yield turns to 4% because 20% of 5 is 1%. So we have to back out 1% for taxes. So after taxes, the after tax yield is 4%. Municipal bond, the yield it's paying is 3.5%. There's no taxes on that. So the after-tax yield is still 3.5%. Well, in this case, even though the municipal bond has tax-free interest, the corporate bond would still be better in this case because its after-tax yield is higher. Now, we're assuming this corporate bond has the same risks, the same maturity, the same everything else that you want to look for when you're investing in a bond. But in this example, all else being equal, the corporate bond would be better because the after-tax yield is higher than the municipal bond. Now, let's assume, though, that you're in a 40% tax bracket. Well, if everything else is the same with the corporate bond and the municipal bond, the corporate bonds after tax yield now falls to 3%. So the 5%, you take out 2% for taxes because 40% of 5% is 2%. In the after tax yield is 3%. The municipal bond, its interest rate is 3.5%. It's still tax-free. So its after tax yield is 3.5%. So now the decision has changed. The corporate bond is paying less on an after-tax basis than the municipal bond is, which means in this case, the municipal bond would be better, again, assuming all else is equal. So that's how I would look at that analysis is number one, start with your asset location and see if you even need or should have bonds in your brokerage account. And then number two, assuming you are going to own bonds, you have to see what's the after-tax yield of both corporate bonds, muni bonds, to make sure you're coming up with an amount that makes sense for you. So that is it. That addresses those three questions. I really appreciate you submitting this question. If you are listening again and you have a question, go to the readyforretirement.co website and click on submit your question so that you can submit a question that I'll answer in a future episode. And again, another reminder, check us out on YouTube at Root Financial Partners. Make sure that you're subscribed to this show here and this podcast, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.